Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you, thank that's, you. That's Mutlu. He won't start any performance without a standing ovation, so we have to do it here on the podcast. That's right. That's right. Well, welcome to the Carl Landry <laughs> Record Club, a music podcast, music appreciation podcast from the rights to Ricky Sanchez. We're here for you basically every week talking about music and trying to recommend music to you and talking about music to each other and good vibes the whole time. We don't trash anything. We rarely trash anything. It is all good vibes. I wouldn't even say it's trashing. We are honest maybe that if we're not feeling something or Yeah, yeah. But know. the goal the goal is to listen to something that we love or the listeners love. We listen we listen to two albums every week and find something that you love about it. Because if somebody else loves it, there must be something to love about it, right? We, as I said, we do two albums every week. If you want to suggest an album, one of the two albums every single week is a listener album. And if you'd like to suggest one, do it in the Apple Podcast reviews, as the listener did this week. I pick an album, or Moot picks an album, and a listener album as well. So the, the two albums we do, oh, I said the Apple Podcast reviews, right? Give us five stars, scroll down in the app, give us five stars, and put your album in there. The two albums today, Moot Lose, is Stevie Ray Vaughan's Couldn't Stand the Weather from 84. Very good year. And the listener album is Amy Sharks. I don't know why 1984 was a good year. It looks good. It sounds famous, right? There's a book called 1984, I guess. Yeah, yes. As far as music. A I'd great like book, go. by the way. I've never read it. Oh, really? I'm wow. very bad at reading books, especially fiction. I actually, for the first time in probably four years or five years, even on Audible, uh, I listened all the way through to a fiction book and I really liked it, but I'm, I'm very bad with fiction. So if you're, if you, cause your whole career revolves around constant media engagement mm-hmm. consumption, right? So you, you just don't probably don't have the bandwidth. Uh, to, I think, you know what yeah. happens with me with fiction? Well, first of all, the, my problem with reading in general is that I always fall asleep when I start reading. So I usually read one or two books and do it on vacation. And my problem with fiction usually is that like nine pages into the book, I'm like, all right, well, who is that again? And there's just a bunch of stuff that I don't like know and I can't keep track. But this one book I read, there were only like four characters in the whole book. So it was good. So... Um, would, did, 1984 is about like the government controlling you or something. Or yeah, it's basically a book about what? fascism. Feels very <clears throat> well. It's a, it's a commentary, social political commentary, mm. but it's something that's referenced a lot nowadays. I think because right, it sort of speaks to uh, governmental control, mind right. control, right. the the distortion of truth. You know? Is there right. a is it, is there a movie? There's got to be a movie, right? Was there ever a movie? I think there is, but I haven't seen it. I just remember reading that book and Animal Farm. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Just being like, wow, this is, I read it when I was young, probably 15, 16. And uh, those are two books I should go back to. Sometimes I have that thought, like, yeah, you know what? I want to read that now, you know? There's another book, this is going to sound ridiculous, that I love that I was thinking about rereading Watership Down. It's about these rabbits, you know what I mean? Rabbits. I think I might have, I might remember that from high school. Would I have read that in high school, maybe? Watership probably. Down? Yeah, it's it's part of a lot of curriculums, I think. By the way, the 1984 movie, which was starring, I'll tell you in a second, John Hurt, uh, William Burton, came out in 1984. There you go. So, very very timely. Yeah, very timely. <laughs> anyway, all right. So, so here's the part. Okay, so Steve Ray Vaughan's couldn't stand the weather from 1984. <laughs> it's a stunning, just a, a fucking. Shot out of a cannon, start to the pod today. And the listener album <laughs> is uh, is Amy Shark's Love Monster from 2018, suggested from Apple Podcast user Kimberly AMS. Kimberly gives us five stars and says, brilliant podcast with two knowledgeable hosts that bring their personalities and true feelings to every album they talk about. Yes, my other name is Kimberly AMS. I actually... Left. No, I didn't leave that review. Kimberly AMS from the United Kingdom leaves that review. So, so thank you. Nice, you thank were, you. you were, and and in fairness, and we'll get to it when we get to the album. I, I was aware of this album already, and already liked this album. I think you told me about her a while yeah, Amy ago. Shark, you yeah, mentioned her probably. Yeah. yeah. So you were just, you just did a few tour dates with our friend Amos Lee, right? Yes. Yes. Where, it was great. Great where'd time. Where'd you play? We played. Uh, it was basically the end of that third leg of his tour. So they'd already been out for a few weeks. 
I just came in and did the last few shows. Lancaster, PA at the American Music Theater. Oh, Beautiful cool. spot. Okay. And you kind of pull from Philly there. Right. And then uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, which is right outside Boston. Okay. That was supposed to be outdoors because of the weather. They brought it indoors. It's still great, though. Great audience. Okay. And uh, the final show was in Laconia, New Hampshire, which I had mm. never heard of before. Mm. But apparently it's kind of a destination, like vacation destination kind of place. And that was a great show, too. And it was very special at the end of that show because we closed out the night with End of the Road. Oh, uh, did men. someone record it? Do you have it recorded? You know what? I need to. Sh- I think Delia got a very short clip of it. Oh my god! I got. I'm sure you someone has some version. Uh, it was so yeah. much fun. What an amazing song! I it, it, I forgot how great that song is. It just it was so much fun to sing. And uh, Jaron, you know, he did the uh, kind of spoken word part. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was just uh, to do that with Amos and his band. They're just such great musicians, and we put it together basically on the fly, like in between my set and, and theirs. Wow, we had done it years ago, but I don't think this lineup had ever done it. So still came together. It was great. His current band is pretty on point, I would say. You know, I saw the New York show, but then seeing the Red Rock show, they just they seem like they're. Uh, it feels very big. They feel like they're vibing right now. Phenomenal. Such a great combination of players. Everyone, they're incredibly skilled musicians, but they all listen. Mm-hmm. And they're just great dynamic in their arrangements. And uh, they're a well-oiled machine at this point. You know, three, third leg of the tour. This was the end yeah. of this particular segment of the tour. And you could just tell they're just, it's second nature. There's a point where a certain band unit hits that intuitive sort of thing where yeah. it's just it's just flowing and they they have that so it was really phenomenal when when i was in red rocks to see amos i that was the first time i'd ever met jaron i'd never met jaron jaron really? olesky wow. yes aka wow. the chef if you listen to the right to ricky sanchez yeah. i don't even know if that was ever his his the, amos referred to him as chef olaf once so uh, that he became <laughs> the chef to me but he's done he's made two rights to ricky sanchez intro songs and I had never met him before I was I felt like I was meeting the I was gonna say the president but that's a, a weird thing like <laughs> I felt like I was meeting the the biggest star of all time when I had met Jaron I was like oh my god that's Jaron isn't it I was so excited to meet him so he's great uh, I yeah. mean I've been friends with him for a long time we're obviously toured with him many many times over the years he's the longest standing band member at this point uh, he's been there pretty much from day one and he's just an incredibly, uh, like a great musician, but a great arranger and sort mm-hmm. of music director yep. uh, as far as just putting putting parts together and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, and every, I mean, uh, Jaron, Zach Janikian, you know, he plays every instrument, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they just, it's just a, it's a great line. Dave Strime, another Philly guy, uh, primarily Philly guys, but uh, then you got James Williams on the drums. Uh, just a really a really cool lineup, you know. And then the new the newest member is this guy Elliot, who's also just great. Oh, yeah. I mean, every yeah. every time every new member that comes in, you know, you figure it takes a little while to like adjust, but he just started at the beginning of this tour, and he's just so dialed in with everyone else. So yeah, just, he sang uh, a song. He sang the verse of a song when when I was at Red Rocks, and he just fucking he murdered it. I mean, he yeah, was he's awesome. a great singer. Yeah. He sings he. Uh, Few nights I was with them, he sang on violin. Okay, uh, yes, that's what he sang on. And he's got a great voice, and Zach yeah. has a great voice too. So, a lot of musical firepower in that band. Um, you want to start? Um, what should we start with? So the last time we I started should mention real quick because oh, we ahead. we t- uh, real quick before we jump yeah. in. Yeah. I don't know if because uh, it came about very last minute, but I'm opening for Hall of Notes a couple nights from now. Now by oh. the time this. Now, well, by the time this airs, it'll probably be a few weeks yes. removed from it. Yes. Uh, but, you know, I know we talked about them early on and all the work I've done with them over the years, but uh, playing with them at this big, in case, well, no one's going to hear this. Mm, yeah. They'll hear it afterwards. Yeah. But uh, but just exciting to to get that invite to do that. It's at this CMAC Performing Arts Center. And Where's that? Let me that? see if I can say it. It's Canon Di... Wait. Um, Canon uh, Daigua or something like that. Canandaigua, that's how you pronounce it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Canandaigua, New York. It's yeah. a it's a big 15,000-cap amphitheater, you know, big lawn and everything. But I think it kind of pulls from, you know, Syracuse and Rochester yep. and Buffalo. And it's just exciting to do another show with them. I've done a lot of tour dates with them in years past, but this is the first time I've had a chance to work with them, you know, 
since before the pandemic. Oh, and, great. Uh, we've talked about this before, but they're they're like among my musical heroes. So you get to work with your heroes just to get that just to get that call, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. really special. So yeah, it's been a big uh, a busy week. By the time this airs, it'll be a few weeks removed, but between the Amos shows and then getting this last minute invite with Hall and Oates, uh, it's exciting. Well, few people don't know that it was Hall and Oates that gave you your nickname Maneater. Is that my nickname? I just felt <laughs> I'm just discovering that. I didn't know that. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. We you learn something new every day, I guess. Mm-hmm. We started with the listener album last time, so why don't we start with yours this time? Start with Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, All right, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Couldn't stand the weather. Now, are you a Stevie Ray fan? No, I appreciate him, but never really listened. I'm not a big, like, guitar virtuoso listener guy, you know, and not a big, you know, it's pretty bluesy. I like, just just not, a, <clears throat> can appreciate him, but not really a fan, never really listened to the records. Yeah, I got inspired to pick this record after we talked about Tom Morello mm, right. on what I think will be, when this comes out, the pod before. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Yep. Right. So uh, because we were just talking about Morello and how skilled he is as a musician, but also, you know, he just doesn't sound like anyone else. Right. Yep. And he's just completely singular in what he does. I mean, he's identifiable. And I got to thinking, who's another guitar player that I love that's like that? In a very different way, but and I thought Stevie Ray Vaughan is that player. You know, I would say on any given day, I would put Stevie Ray Vaughan in my top five favorite guitar players, right there with like Ernest Wranglin and Grant Green, who are musicians we've discussed. Mm-hmm. I generally lean more towards the jazz players, mm-hmm. but there is a jazz element in what Stevie Ray does, and uh, he kind of merges a number of different styles. But it's first and foremost rooted in the blues. But this record was his second album. This was the record that really cemented his status as, you know, sort of a, a blues rock guitar, blues guitar icon. So I'm glad we're finally getting around to doing one of his records because I'm surprised we haven't done it by now. I've, I've been a big fan of his a long time. And I'll say this, the, the title track of this album, Couldn't Stand the Weather, was the first track that introduced me to Stevie Ray. So... Mm. There's a deep nostalgia with this one, but just give a little backdrop on him. Uh, born and raised in Dallas, heavily influenced by his older brother, Jimmy Vaughn, who's another legendary blues singer, guitarist, is still out there touring. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, yeah. He, his style's a little different than Stevie Ray's, but they collaborated, you know, throughout throughout Stevie Ray's career and throughout Jimmy's career. They've all they always worked together. Stevie Ray began playing in garage bands in junior high. So he started at a very young age, and again, he had that influence of his older brother. Gradually started playing clubs, but his first real band was the Cobras, which started playing around Austin in the mid-70s, and that's really where his career emerged, or, you know, he the cornerstone sort of home base uh, for him musically was Austin. Of course, it's an amazing music city, especially when you think of Texas music, Texas blues. No better place to be based. After that band imploded, he next formed Triple Threat, with the bassist Jackie Newhouse, drummer Chris Layton, and vocalist Luann Barton. And after a few years of playing around Texas, Luann Barton left, and they became a trio. And they rebranded the group as Steve Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah. kind of always his band unit. He became the lead singer. And that was kind of the core unit throughout the rest of his career. That group became a fixture in Austin, one of the most popular bands in Texas, but it was still kind of regional. The real breakthrough to national international fame came in at the Montreux Festival in 1982. That was a big turning point for him because David Bowie saw him at that festival and invited him to play on his next record, which, as fate had it, was Let's Dance. 
So when you hear Let's Dance, Stevie Ray's all over that. He's a big part of that. Uh, I didn't know sound that of that album. Also at that festival, Jackson Brown offered him some studio time. So that was, he obliged both offers, and that was just a big moment. So Stevie Ray lays down the lead guitar tracks for Bowie's Let's Dance. Shortly after he recorded that record with him, another blues legend, John Hammond Jr., helped him get a record deal with Epic Records. And the rest, as they say, is history. He released his debut album, Texas Flood, in the summer of 83. Now, Let's Dance had come out a few months earlier, so that had already helped to sort of build his profile, you know, build some visibility around him and get his name out there. As it worked out, David Bowie actually asked him to join the band. You know, he gave him the offer to become his lead guitar player. Really? Yeah. So Bowie offered him the lead guitar position in his band, and Stevie Ray declined, uh, which is... It's crazy to think that a musician would turn down David Bowie, but I kind of understand in that he had a deal of his own. He had a, a, a record that was coming out, and you know the, he he'd been playing with that unit for years. And I guess he kind of just went all in on doing his own thing. You know, maybe it's cool that he played on the album, but I guess if he committed to the tour, it would have been tough for him to really get his own career off the ground. So, but it is crazy to think. that <laughs> that a musician would yeah, be invited to down. play in David Bowie's band and, and turn him down. It wor- it paid off for Stevie, though, because Texas Flood dropped in the summer of 83, received critical acclaim, reached number 38 on the Billboard chart, and right away from early on in his career, he had crossover appeal to mainstream rock stations. He was never really tethered to just being a, a purely a genre artist. He wasn't just stuck in that sort of in that sort of blues genre where he was only played on those types of roots blues stations, he always had this crossover appeal, starting with this record. And of course, he had the big label behind him, so I'm sure that helped. But I don't think he was ever, although he's rooted in the blues, he always had a notion of, I think, expanding beyond that musically. Now, the record we're talking about, Couldn't Stand the Weather, dropped in May of 1984, even bigger commercial success than its predecessor. And he was rolling, sold out tours. And I want to mention one thing. If you, you can find this on Spotify, there's a deluxe version of Texas Flood, the debut album, that features a handful of recordings from Ripley's Music Hall here in Philadelphia. Now, that was way Where before my Ripley's time. Ripley's Music Hall? I don't, wait, it was before my time. I'm okay. guessing it was before your time as well. Yeah. It was, uh, it was right on the I'm corner. like one year older than you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you're a couple years older, but I don't know. Okay. All right. But yeah, you were yeah. kind of around, because you've always been around broadcasting, I thought maybe sure. yeah, just at a young age. You. Yeah. I'm just fucking with you. You're like, well, it, was, it wasn't my time, but I don't know. when you Your were, time. Hey, man, you're another generation, all right? When you those were riding the bus for a nickel, those few probably... years make a big difference, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll tell you, you know, tickets to that place were only a penny. Uh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And how much were drinks? Five cents? Drink drinks were two cents. Two actually. cents. Wow. You could get three drinks for five cents from the soda pop fountain. Incredible. From the soda pop fountain. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, blast from the past, going yep. down memory lane. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, Ripley's was on sixth and south. It was eventually demolished, and that's where they built that big tower records that used to be there. Ah, so I remember that. that. Corner, which Did is now also gone under. I got a job at that place for one day. When when one I graduated, day. one day, I, when I graduated college, I applied to all these different radio stations all across the country. I didn't get any of the jobs. And then finally, I had to work somewhere. It had been a few months, so I got a job at Blockbuster Video. I worked there for one day. On the second day, it was so boring that I took off my my badge and put it on the counter and I just left and I never said anything to them. It was the most boring job I had ever had. <clears throat> but that next day, I got offered a job at Tower Records, which was awesome. It was full time. They had, uh, you know, you got benefits or whatever. And I went for my orientation and got the call from WISP when they offered me the job and I went to YSP and I... All I had at Tower Records was orientation. But I was so excited to work at that Tower Records. In South that Street. was a great Tower Records. I used to love going there. Multi-levels. Mm-hmm. Yep. It felt like an experience going into that place. Yep, yep, for sure. And then you get judged uh, on by the, the look of the person who sells you whatever you've bought. So, right. Oh, yep. yeah. Oh, yeah. Total that judgment. was a thing. Yep. You know, these are things that are 
lost in the streaming era. Maybe they exist to some degree in these sort of specialty vinyl shops, but mm -hmm. that thing that you just mentioned, occasionally I would buy a, a record or a CD, cassette, whatever, and question if like if the person at the at the uh, register was too hip looking. Like, am I gonna am I embarrassing yeah. myself by that? That was a thing, but that was part of the fun of it, you know. <laughs> feeling like a total asshole just for liking music is <laughs> part of the joy. I, I agree. I mean, honestly, for me, it was going in. I think the thing that I miss most is just flipping through yeah. CDs and stuff just to, and not, you could do it at a record store, but it, oh, you have just, I guess, so much more knowledge about what would be in there that you don't see something and you're like, ooh, what's this? And that was the, I don't know, one of the coolest part about just shopping for CDs or tapes or whatever is just going through them, you know, especially the used places like Repo or Plastic Fantastic, uh, the places in the Philadelphia suburbs where you go through like the used bin where they're just, you know, like five for $10 or whatever and just sorting through them. You I used to love that. That was yeah. the thing. Doing that, going to the video store. I feel like an old head saying all this now, but yeah, you, know, you are. Well, not as old as me. But I guess old. you're much, much older than me. So yes, I mean. yes, yes. <laughs> I, I was, I was, I was there when all music was was banging your head against a giant stone. We didn't have any instruments, no. so we would just find a stone and just bang our heads into the stone. Edison um, was just inventing the cylinder. Correct. When Correct. you were kind of first getting into things, right? Getting into music, yeah, for Which sure. You mean you're about 130 years old, I guess? Mm -hmm. 130 years old, yep. Wow, it's yep. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Oh, you look good. You look good thank for you. a buck 30. Thank you, thank you, thank you. A lot of gray hair, but I'm, uh, but I'm, I'm getting by. I'm getting by. <laughs> So anyhow, as the, we're, we're, we're on like a tangent kick. Yeah, yeah I feel a like lot every, of tangent. Well, this is what happens see, when I'm at night, buddy. Well, I know, because see, I should say, I should mention, we normally record Sunday mornings, mm -hmm. uh, but <laughs> there's something different about recording at night. I think because you've, you've already gone through the day. Yeah. Do you feel that? I, I, I don't know. I have a different, it's a different feeling recording the pod in the, in the morning, which is what we normally do. Yeah, like I'm better in the morning. I'm definitely better in the morning. I think I can get... I just, I, right around, and it is also because I get up so early, right around 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, my focus is gone. I have trouble yeah. focusing. So that's why I keep doing this. Not because I'm not listening to you, but because <laughs> I'm so easily distracted at night. You I'm know, right there so. with you, though, because I, yeah. yeah, I think I'm better in the morning, too. I've done this enough now. I think mm -hmm. uh, there's a different... I feel like you can engage when it's the first thing you do or one of the first things you do in the day. Yeah. Once you've done a point. bunch of other things, you're you're more discombobulated or something. I don't know. Dude, sometimes when we start those fucking rights to Ricky Sanchez pods after playoff games at like 10.45 or oh. 11 o'clock, I want to kill somebody. It's so horrible to start a podcast then to just turn your brain on, you know? And Especially go, after right. like a double overtime or something. Oh, the worst. <laughs> well, you're going to have more of that in your future. It's not, mm. it's just around the corner. I mean, mm. I'm hoping maybe they don't make the no, 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 I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I know you quietly root against the Sixers. I know that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mental tug of war inside yes. your brain. You know, if it ends, it ends. If season ends, it ends. You know, that's there's nothing good, I can do about it. You know. See, so. that's good. That that keeps you from being mm -hmm. too emotionally devastated by it. No, yeah, I don't get emotionally devastated over sporting events anymore. Those fucking guys are 20 years old. What the fuck? <laughs> I'm gonna. Lose sleep over those motherfuckers not winning a game. They still get paid the entire amount. I know. No, no, Gazillions no. of dollars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, God bless them. But anyway, where were we? I can't. I'm I sorry. I'm distracting. <laughs> no, it's all good. I couldn't stand the weather, right. which was a bigger commercial success. That's the one we're discussing. Now, right around this time, mm -hmm. his career was rolling, but he really started to struggle with alcoholism and drug use. There's actually a great song from later in his career called Tightrope that he wrote and released. It was one on one of his later albums. It sort of talked about that new perspective that he had after going into rehab and getting mm -hmm. sober. And I'll say this, I think Stevie Ray Vaughan improved dramatically as a songwriter over the course of his career. Interesting. I think earlier records, like this one I, I would say, qualifies. There were good songs, but many of the songs felt like a vehicle to showcase his, his guitar playing. work. Yeah. yeah. But I think as he went on, he focused more on the songwriting craft. And, you know, if you like this record, 
it's worth checking out the others that came after this one because I, with each album, I think he got better. And I think he maybe put more time and attention into his songwriting. That song, Tightrope, in particular, one of my favorites. So after this record comes out, he released two more albums in his lifetime, Soul to Soul in 85 and Instep in 89. Very sadly, he passed away in a helicopter crash after playing a gig with Buddy Guy, Eric Clapton, Robert Cray, and uh, his brother Jimmy Vaughn. This was in 1990, August 26th of 1990, so the anniversary of that just passed. A crazy thing, he did this all-star jam. He gets in the helicopter. The, the gig was in Wisconsin. Five minutes after takeoff, the helicopter crashes. Kills him and the other four people in there. He was only 35, so gone far too soon. Just a really tragic end to an incredible career. But he left behind an amazing legacy. I think if you like this type of blues guitar, which I'm not, I'm kind of with you. I'm not always that into guitar-heavy blues music, but I, I just always felt there's something special about Stevie Ray Vaughan's playing, something different, something that transcended. A month after he passed, another record came out uh, with his brother Jimmy Vaughan. This was like a, a full record they did together called Family Style. That's another great listen. So, you know, it's worth, I would say if... if Maybe start with this one, go back to Texas Flood, which was a debut, because I debated on picking that one. And then it's worth going through the other three studio albums. And of course, over the years, there have been many posthumous releases. There's so many great live recordings of him. I think to fully absorb what he does, you've got to take some time with the live records to really understand his greatness as a player. And there's a lot of great videos. There's one in particular from Toronto. I forget the name of the club, but that is a great live performance. So, you know, I think the studio records are just kind of one piece of his legacy. But as a guitarist, he was someone that really merged that classic blues style of, you know, say great guitarists like Albert King. But he took that and brought in more of the rock influence, classic rock influence. I think his biggest influence was probably Jimi Hendrix. And he did great renditions of Hendrix songs. And then he also had this jazz influence, especially there's moments... Uh, are you familiar with Kenny Burrell, a jazz guitarist? No. He's another, you know, jazz guitar legend, One of my, another one of my favorites. Maybe we'll do one of his records at some point. But I hear a thread with Kenny Burrell's playing and Stevie Ray Vaughan's playing sometimes. And the, the closing track on the original release of this record is Stang Swang. You can kind of hear they go for a jazz sort of thing to close out the record. Just to do a few highlights, the title track, Couldn't Stand the Weather, I think that's quintessential Stevie Ray. The song itself, I'll, I'll, I will say, is kind of secondary to <laughs> what's sure. happening musically. I mean, it's a yeah. it's a cool song, but, yeah, but you it's know. all a setup. It's yeah. all a setup. I'll right. say this. Okay, from a song standpoint, it's maybe secondary. It's really a guitar composition. Right. Uh, you know, it's a great guitar hook. You sort of have this thing of like, the combination of rhythm and lead playing, which is the the hook of the song, that riff that he plays, I just that's the thing that caught me when I first heard this. I also think the guitar solos really exemplify Stevie Ray's greatness as a player in his ability to play busy and still play with a lot of emotion. A lot of times I'm partial to someone like B.B. King who can just play three, four notes but just hits you in an emotional way. On another level, Slash. Slash is like that in a, in a very different yes, style, sure. you know. Something that's melodic and simpler but emotional. I'm not always into the, you know, there's people like Joe Bonamassa who's an extra, extraordinary guitarist, but doesn't always hit me on an emotional level. I feel like Stevie Ray was the exception where he could play those lightning fast runs, but the, the, the intensity, the emotion came through in his playing. Another highlight, the Jimi Hendrix cover, Voodoo Child. I think that's just the perfect balance of paying homage to the original 
and then kind of making it his own when he stretches out on the solos. And then one other tune I would say is Cold Shot, which is towards the end of the album. Remember the way that you love me. A little bit of a different vibe on that one, kind of a nice mid-tempo shuffle, and I think it's one of Stevie Ray's best vocal performance. It's a little more understated, laid back. It just has a just a really nice groove to it. So, uh, you know, he's an he was an incredible musician and. Uh, it was nice to revisit this album, and um, you know, I know this isn't you're saying not so much your cup of tea, but what was your kind of overall impression of this? Well, I mean, the playing. I don't want to like get into guitar dorkery or whatever here, but like it definitely sounds like such an extension of his like body in in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not yeah. just playing the guitar; it sounds <laughs> like it's coming from him now. Like that said, his like his vocals, he's almost singing because he has to. Almost it seems <laughs> like he's like there's yeah. there's some points in the songs where he starts singing words like he's like ah fuck I'm supposed to there's a good, words got to go here and he just yeah. sort of throws them out there and mumbles <laughs> them and gets them out there, but uh, but his you know like I'm always impressed with the the playing. Like, look, the, the the thing that you mentioned about his ability both to play busy and 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 with feeling is tough, and he's able to do that, and that's impressive. But like, the other thing that is impressive to me is the tone that he achieves is like, especially lead wise, his lead tone. Like, it sounds like the neck pickup. It sounds like he's either just playing on the neck pickup or the neck and the bridge pickup or whatever. But it is so pure. And you wonder how he gets it that pure and that clean. And it, what's crazy is it almost sounds like like somebody finger picking. But like from what I know, he wasn't a, a finger picker. Like he he hit he hit strings pretty hard. Even I think his he would even use like the wrong end of the pick that he played it so hard. He used like the fat end of the pick, which is I don't know just the the. The, the feel he had to be able to achieve that sort of a tone playing that way is just, is crazy, you know? Yeah. And I, I actually, the two songs I picked, it couldn't stand the weather. And, and honestly, Voodoo Child does not do a disservice. It does like complete service to it. Like it almost elevates the song in, in a way. And it, it's funny the way that he and Hendrix that there's so much similarity and so much difference to how they play. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they're, they're both incredible and it feels like it's coming from the same place in their gut. But Stevie Ray is almost more, even though the songs aren't great, is almost more, I guess, musical and clean in the way he plays. And Hendrix was a little more reckless and emotional, I guess, is the... The difference, I would say, he's like it's a really cool album just to listen to the guitar playing. You know, even Scuttlebutt, like the first one, you're like, oh, I've heard this. some point like i feel yeah. like i've heard that song maybe i'm waiting mute like hold music or something somewhere but it's just like it's an he's just such an impressive player you know and it's one of those things like when we talked about morello that is in you and is born in you and obviously he's obviously practiced a lot but some people just have this thing in them and he had it in him yeah that was a great point you made about him and hendrix it was really interesting because you're right. They're actually, there is a considerable difference in their playing. I think it's almost like Stevie Ray's more of a technician. And mm -hmm. uh, you're right. Uh, even in his rhythm playing, sometimes H Hendrix would take a little bit of a different approach. 
but it's the core thing that you said. You just feel the emotion coming through in the playing. Yeah. And there aren't that many guitarists that I think can do that. No. Um, and it's not about the overdrive or the effects or any of that. It's the person playing the instrument. And uh, you're right about <laughs> the, almost like the vocals are sort of a placekeeper. Yeah. Um, that's why I would say some of his later work, like a song like Tightrope, there's, that's really a, a well-written song. And you could tell he really committed to the vocal. And I think he veered more towards that later on. But... Uh, yeah, it, it's basically a great opportunity to just take off on the guitar. But mm -hmm. I think I think it's interesting too that he was someone who you know so had gold and platinum records, right? Uh, like you know, from, from especially like you know albums like this. Yeah, you know, like this is not the yeah. kind of an album that sells a million records. You know? No, but but yeah. I think this was. I believe this at least went gold, if not eventually platinum. Yeah, if if this record comes out today, it won't do anything close to that. I mean, it won't hit that. It won't hit commercially in that way, right? Not a chance. Uh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I, that there's there's no chance. It was a you know the, the '80s in a way. The '80s were a great guitar decade. The '80s yeah. and the '90s were were great guitar decades. Where not just Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, you talk about those other virtuoso type guys, but Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and Ingve Malmsteen and all these guys whose um, primary, you know, calling card was that they were really good at guitar. This was a time where you could do that and and stand out. And I, I don't know that it's the same now as it used to be. Now, it, it, I'm not going to do the, the fucking the DJ guys who are just playing other people's music. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, and that has shit. a broader commercial appeal. <laughs> yeah. Now this would be sort of a, a genre release, you know, it'd be yeah. a niche yep. sort of release. So it's a, also, you know, there, I don't think there's any way this would cross over into mainstream rock radio. No, no. Which it did. No. At this time, it did. Yeah. Did you ever, in all your time as on air, as a programmer, did you, was Stevie Ray Vaughan ever part of a playlist or... I'm trying to think of. I feel like there was one song. Hold on, let me look. From oh, Chicago or YSP? Pride and Joy. Ah, that's we, a great we play one. Pride and Joy on uh, on YSP, not in Chicago. That Chicago was an alternative station, but we definitely played Pride and Joy on YSP every once in a while. So, so even yeah. now he's in recurrent or, or has been until recently. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine that song gets played in places. You know, I would imagine Pride and Joy still gets played. That's that's probably it, though. You know, I think everybody knew who he was, but he, it's not like he, he didn't really have hits. You know. Yeah, so. they were at maybe the mid reaches of the mainstream rock chart. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't going to sure. be a, it was never going to be a top 40 no. crossover, but in those days you didn't need that to go no. gold or platinum. <laughs> no, the good old days. The good yeah. old days. Yeah. When you were you were in your 80s back then? Yes, I, I was yeah. I was yeah, I was I was on my I was finishing up my third marriage uh, wow. in 1984, wow. right. Uh, <laughs> well, great selection. It was a it was a, a cool record to listen to. Um, right on. Listener record from Kimberly AMS from the United Kingdom, Amy Shark's Love Monster. As I had mentioned, I had discovered this album two, three years ago, and I went through probably a month of listening to it a lot. I think she's great. Amy Shark has a cool story, I think, like a, a grinded out story, a, a make it a little later in life than, than most people make it, which is really still much younger than me, but, but, uh, but made it. So she is, she's Australian, which... I love, and she also sings with an Australian accent, which I love. Um, you, can, you don't hear it in every song, but you certainly hear it quite a bit. She is from Gold Coast, uh, Queensland. Her real name is Amy Billings. She also uh, performed under the name Amy Cushway, which is her stepdad's name. She was in a punk band in high school called Hansel Kissed Gretel, and when High school ended and they broke up. She just kept writing songs and writing acoustic songs. And it was, it was for, for her, it was singing and it was acting 
and actually like video production. She loved filming stuff. She started while she was like after high school, while she was performing her solo music stuff, she also would like do weddings, like video for weddings and birthday parties and stuff like that. She ended up actually becoming her job for a while was the video editor for the Gold Coast Titans, which was an Australian an Australian rugby club that her husband worked for. She was their their video editor, which I think is really wow. is great. <laughs> so she starts putting out EPs on her own, and most of it singer songwriter, like upbeat singer songwriter type stuff, as Amy Cushway. And then, like right around 2013, she changes her name her stage name for, to Amy Shark because her favorite movie was Jaws is, is the only, I, there was, really? there was an, yeah, well, there was an <laughs> article that had the quote, but, and I found an archive of it, but the quote wasn't there. So I, yeah, I could see it in the preview, but I couldn't find the entire article, but that's what she says. So, well, if I were to change uh, my name, I guess I, that would make me like Luke Corleone, like yes, the Godfather. Yes. And that would yes, be the parallel. You know? Yes. What would mine be? I don't even know what my favorite movie is. I'll have to think about that. <laughs> so she's grinding, doing cover gig, cover gigs, releasing EPs, and actually ends up performing at a uh, contest, like a singing contest that her husband gets her to do, and she, she actually wins it. So she eventually puts out this song called Golden Fleece that she writes, records, produces herself. And it wins Pop Song of the Year at the Queensland Music Awards in 2016. And it's a really cool song, by the way. Really, like, builds sort of like pretty and dark at the same time. And by the way, when this finally happens, when she has this song, she's 31 years old, which is, you know, like for a female pop star, it, it usually doesn't, that's not when it starts happening. No, it's, you know? yeah, you know, she would have normally been on like her like fourth record or something. Yep. And I think there was this one quote from a from an, an interview I read with her, because we have talked about artists and their first couple of albums having so much to say, and then all of a sudden you have to write more and more and more, and you have less and less experience to, you know, life experience to write it with. And your life experience, if you're a performing artist, is sort of more narrow because your your life is about performing music. And she said, I get a, little, a lot of younger girl musicians saying, how do you come up with it? Do you create characters? And I'm like, dude, I've just got so much more data to digest and things I've been through, relationships, friendships, family, bullshit. So uh, she sees it, I guess, as a, a positive. So she wins that award and she gets that song and she gets a grant from the, the Gold Coast where she's from to go and make more music. And she had wanted a guy named M Phases to produce a couple of songs for her. His discography, his name is Mark Landon, has produced records for Logic, Demi Lovato, Madonna, Eminem, oh, wow. um, yada, 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 Noah Cyrus. So she, you, you have to apply to do this and she ends up getting uh, the ability to get two songs produced by him. And one of them is a door which ends up becoming a huge hit. Also around the same time, she was on, have you ever watched Like a Virgin? The Triple J, like Australian network, does these, actually Gang of Youths just did it. Does yeah, this thing they where they have- a cover thing. Didn't he do, David do yeah. a cover for it? Yep, yeah. they, they, have, they have people come in and do covers and talk about them. And she did Silver, Silver Chair's Miss You Love, um, which uh, is a, a favorite song of mine. But, and she talked about- It all comes back to Silver Chair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So she, she goes on Triple J, she does that. She does the Silver Chair song and then Adore becomes like an enormous hit. And after that, she, uh, there's a bidding war for her. She signs with Sony and she puts out an EP in 2017. That year, she wins Artist of the Year and Song of the Year at the Gold Coast Music Awards. 
then she wins the, uh, she gets nominated for six awards at the ARIA, the Australian Grammys or whatever in 2017 and wins best pop release and breakthrough artist for her, for the EP that came out. And she performed at that. And then after that, she's, she does Fallon, yada, 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 and it starts to happen for her. And then finally she puts out this album that we're talking about, Love Monster, which is her debut album, which came out in 2018. It is pretty hard for a, like pop I think is probably narrowing the music down a little bit more than, than I would narrow it, but it's pretty tough to like have an album full of songs that you're trying to make catchy and have 14 songs in the album and have it be this long and not have a bunch of misses on it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and I wouldn't put it in the pop category either, but you're right. I, it's a great listen, start to yeah. finish. I mean, what a great album. And it's interesting that you said, so this record dropped after she'd already hit on an international level. So she got there with like singles and an EP, basically. Yeah, well, a bunch of, e- I think she had four or five EPs. And, you know, internationally, I guess we could say, but she hit in Australia. Like that's where she hit, you know, it just, that's where it seems like it hit. It, it wasn't anywhere else. I, I, don't, I wouldn't even know how to define the record. Like there's a bunch of different genres you hear in it. You definitely hear like there's pop punk in there, you know, like, and then there's like, there's rock music in there. Like she is, she seems like a, a rock artist, I guess. Sort of like, I'm trying to remember like the, even like the rocky part of the Lilith Fair type. Like that's the last time I remember women with, guitars and you know playing music like that is what i remember so there's singer songwriter stuff there's pop punk in there there's there's even moments of like postmoderny type depeche mode sounds in there you know it's like an interestingly produced record i i think the album like start to finish is really doesn't have any misses on it the the opener is a song called I Got You. What did you think about me the second that you saw me? What did I think about you, baby? I thought of everything. Spending more time than I should. I sound like you. I knew I would. In the wrong place at the same time. I'm out of my mind. If we don't do this today, there goes a day. Another moment which actually re- reminds me of Julian Michaels a little bit, like with the... Oh, man, you oh. and Great Minds really do think Oh, did, did you? No, because that's one of the songs I singled out, and it oh, made yeah. me think of... I, I'm forgetting the name of her album now that we had discussed, the Julia Michaels record. It made yeah, me... Yeah. It put me in the same musical place somehow. And yeah. I don't know why... Maybe there's some level of knowing that you were a big fan of hers and knowing what a big fan you, you are of Julia Michaels that... Maybe my mind was just putting the two together, but I, I heard parallels at a few moments, especially on that lead track. Yeah, so there's there's a couple of things that remind me of it here. And if you're an Amy Shark fan, I'm sorry, I'm comparing her to somebody else. I do this all the time because if you're not a fan, I think it, it helps. I think there's something about the guitar lick in it that is actually sort of like, like that da-da-da-da. Da, 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 reminds me of something that would happen in a Julia Michaels song. And even like her delivery is sort of uh, almost, she does this a bunch of times with the album where she's sort of like talk singing a little bit. And it's not, she's not talking and she's not rapping, but like she has like almost this talk sort of cadence. And I, I think, I think her lyrics are, are pretty great, actually. I think there's a lyric in this, in this song called, if we don't do this today, there goes a day, another moment that could have been ours. We'll figure it out. That's what I do. You know, I got you. Like, <laughs> that's a cool, like, uh, you know, love song lyric, I think. Yeah, um, that, that, that's one thing that strikes you listening to her is the lyrics are not your run-of-the-mill, no. uh, you know, pop singer-songwriter kind of thing. That I guess that's what put me out of thinking of it as a straight-ahead pop record, even though she writes a lot of love songs, songs about love, but she le- writes about them from the, the, the standpoint of w- the turmoil people go through, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is also yeah. kind of like Julia Michaels. Same, yeah. Same yeah. kind of appeal. Couple more. I love I Said Hi.
again, she does the same thing, but the tone in this is, it's the tone of somebody who has busted their ass their whole lives and gotten here and known, known that they did. And there's a line in there, lying on my side, watching time fly by. And I bet the whole world thought that I would give up today. Um, <laughs> it's a cool, it's a cool line. And then there's the other, only other one I'll mention because I love male, female duet type songs. I just, I think I love them. Psycho with Mark Hoppus from Blink-182 is a really cool song. I ask you because I want to know, not because I'm psycho, just because I care a lot. And I touch you the way I do because I'm falling in love with you and I don't do this every day. I ask you because I want to know, not because I'm psycho, just because I care a lot. I, one of my, I love the remake, the All Cried Out remake with Allure and 112. Do you remember no. the, the remake of that song? Do you no. know the song, All Cried Out? Oh, you no, I don't think I, maybe I'll, I'll recognize it if I, if I hear yeah, it. Yeah, I'll bring it up. So those are the ones, but I think the whole album, and Adore is, Adore is on this album, but that, that song that was a hit. But it's not one of my favorites, but it's a great tune. So Lisa Lisa and the Cult Jam did All Cried Out originally. Here's the Allure on 112 one. Oh, yeah. This is 90s. I love this. Love this era, this sound. Oh, so good. (laughs) Yeah. You don't remember this song? No, I don't think I've heard this. The best part about this song is that it came out in our college radio station. Wait, hold on. We would put our headphones on and we would like argue over who got to be 112 um, <laughs> or who had to be a lore or whatever. Uh, so that's that. But I love, I love male-female duet type songs. I like love that. those type of mid-down-tempo oh. 90s R&B ballads. It was like the babyface era. It was like... Oh, like man. Like wherever you, I mean, you were talking about boys to men. Like when every, every tune, even the slow tune was like a mid-tempo... I mean, like from Tony Rich and fucking John B and and all that. Uh, oh, portrait, so remember Portrait? That was another. Yes, Uncle uh, Sam. Do you remember Uncle Sam? That I don't recall. Oh, I don't yeah. ever want to see you again. Oh <laughs> God, we we should do a whole episode on nineties nineties mid tempo R and B. I love that the era. Best. And you're right, yeah. Babyface ruled that era. Yeah. The other day I was messing around with the song "Change the World." Uh, oh yeah. Song, but I really think that's a babyface song. Yes, it's and a just baby learning face those song. chords and singing that hook mm-hmm. is just so satisfying. I mean, it's, uh. and I'm like, I'm deconstructing the song, looking at it. It's like this is Eric Clapton has nothing to do with this. He just recorded it. This is yeah, babyface. Yeah. It's a babyface tune. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a great song. But uh, yeah, this album, man, I really love this album. And I remember, I think early on you mentioned her. Like, like maybe, early on in a pod, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, maybe. I recall. But, so you mentioned the kind of range of genres that it pulls from, but I guess the two elements that I really keyed in on that I, that really connected with me was the way she sort of combines almost this sort of uh, elect pop, electro-pop kind of sound. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost sort of a, the kind of production you hear in down-tempo tracks sometimes. Mm-hmm. With this more convention, uh, confessional singer-songwriter approach, yeah, she splits the difference between those two things in a really distinctive way. And and I, you're right on with the '90s comparison. Like it makes me think of some of those great '90s female singer-songwriters that mm-hmm. that came out and Lilith Fair, that whole era. But but her thing is very modern. She has some great hooks. Mess her up. I'm ready to shake things up. Really gonna mess her up, and I keep on 
one yeah. of her best vocal performance. I think what really is special about her is she's an artist that writes and sings about, you know, for the most part uh, on this record, sort of the volatile nature of relationships. But something about the way she puts it together lyrically is just very relatable. Uh, when, when you listen, there's something that you can take from it that will that you can correlate to your own experience. And the best songwriters know how to do that. It's just not it's 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 baked in there, you know. But there's something about the way she writes that you just you it gets right to the heart of it. It actually sort of reminds me about the way that Driver's License is written, not as a song, but like lyrically, how it, yeah. how you hear it and you feel it. You know what I mean? Like I, I feel like she writes lyrics in the in, in, not 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 in the same way, but hits you in the same way. Yeah, where you can sort of even if it's the context of the song is not something you connect to necessarily. Something about the intention behind it or what it's trying to communicate mm-hmm. just just gets you. I also, I love the production on this. This yeah. is a conversation that comes up over and over again with some of our favorite albums, but it applies here. The thing of not over-inundating the production with sound, yeah. but but just leaving room for the artist. I mean, you, almost every song, you, you not every song, but I'd say the majority of tracks, you get the picture of her with her guitar. She's front and center and clear, and they're just these nice production flourishes around her that just support the songs. But what you know right away is, if you strip all that away, these songs will work bare bones, you know, yeah. voice guitar. And it's not overproduced in any way. It's just those four or five right so- sounds that work. Some songs will have almost what sounds like a little vocal sample. I think I Got You kind of has that. Mm-hmm. And so it's this great combination of what could, if it was presented in another way, be a, a more conventional singer-songwriter album. But because of how it's presented and the production around it, it takes it way out of that. And it leaves all the room for her to shine and to mm-hmm. and to just deliver. I, 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 as a vocalist, you know, I think she's very distinctive. I mean, her voice is, is unique in its timbre and her phrasing. I think she, uh, you could maybe draw parallels to her and some other artists, but Listening to this record, I couldn't immediately say, oh, she just reminds me of so-and-so. I mean, she has her own distinctive sort of delivery. Yeah, I don't I don't have a, a particular comp for her. I, she, she, there's just a lot of influences and a lot of sounds in there. I was just looking. She was she just finished up a 60-date Australian tour. Just 60, 60 dates shows. in Australia? 60 wow. dates in Australia. It looked like about 45 of them were sold out. So... <laughs> Wow. Are there yeah. that many markets? To, that must be like multiple nights in places. Big, Australia's pretty big fucking, you know, continent, yeah. I guess. There's just not a lot of people, you know. But um, there's probably smaller towns or markets you can get into. And I, Man. I used to know how many people were in Australia. 25 million. Well, that's enough for 60 dates, I guess. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I mean, yeah. you could probably, hell, you could probably do something close to that. Well, Maybe not in Sweden alone, but Sweden, Norway. You hear about artists who just tour Scandinavia and they play a lot of shows. And I'm always wondering, like, how do they have enough markets to put together? But then you realize there's these small little pockets that are like the small towns that, you know, if you really connect in a certain place, you you, you don't just hit the big markets. You hit the the, yeah. the secondary and tertiary markets, too. So yeah, um, I guess sure. I think of the U.S., it's like. If you if you compare it to Europe or other parts of the world, it's like eight countries in one. When you think about what you need to do, right, to complete a, na- a full national tour, right, 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 in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a lot sure. to get through. One other one other song that really stood out to me. I can't remember if you mentioned this one, but it was a uh, all loved up. I hate to take off and land, so you hold my hand. And there's a man next to you with a killer view of New York. Somehow you manage to get me talking too much Yeah, there's a rhythm Yeah, there's a feeling Oh, oh yeah, great tune That's, That's a great, great tune. tune Yeah That, I love when she gets him into her upper register She doesn't do it as much I almost was wanting her to do it more, you know uh, Because when she gets in that upper upper register There's this great resonance in her voice I love the production on that one. I think it's the it's the good a perfect snapshot of why the production works so well. You get this sort of sparse uh, 
electronic sound. And then when the chorus comes in, there's this this synth pad that just kind of sneaks in, and that's all it needs. It just mm-hmm. just that one sound. And when I listened to that one, it almost made me think a little bit of Kate Bush. Ah, it kind yeah, of, we didn't like that album. <laughs> hey, but we were ahead of the curve, man. We, we were. were, yo, we were, we we, <laughs> we we talked about the Kate Bush album. And we're like, ah, I guess it's okay. And then a year later, every like it is the biggest song. Yeah, forty years later, fucking running up the hill, which is a good tune. Obviously, it is. No, is we acknowledge tune. that that was a great tune. I it's mean, a great song, but but. You know, it's just yeah. funny. It's funny of all the songs to blow up. Like, hey, hey, folks, you hear, you heard it here first. Right? right, right. You heard it here yes. first. We were talking about that long before the Stranger Things happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, that's it's. Can you? Is there another example you can think of a song that was a hit for I don't know thirty, forty years ago that all of a sudden had this sort of uh, resurgence, like this sort of moment at the top of the chart? I, I can't think of one right offhand. So uh, maybe not that old, but when Red Red Wine was a hit, that song was old, UB40 song. That's a great so song. Red Red Wine, when did it actually come out? It came out in 84, uh, it was only like five five minutes or five years after it actually came out. Um, so it was a shorter turnaround time. Yeah, it was a shorter turnaround. It's different now. Like the the ability of people to go and listen to the song immediately when they hear it. You know, like if a song was thirty years old and was in a TV show thirty years ago, you would have to find it. <laughs> you right. know, like right. you have to find it. You would have to buy it. And now the ability of everyone to listen all at once. You know, once that happens, you know, the beginning of that was like the uh, what's the hospital show that used to launch that launched the Frey song, uh, Grey's Anatomy. Like Grey's Anatomy, right? You know, like that was Grey's Anatomy. Like to me, was like the f- the moment where that really started happening when songs would get on TV and all of a sudden, oh, and uh, Chasing Cars, Snow Patrol was was in that show too. And it right. ended up being massive because it was in that show. And there's different levels to that as far as songs that have a resurgence. Like there's some great classic songs that become very popular again because you just keep hearing them in films and television shows. But right. what happened, what has happened with the Kate Bush song is a, is something extra. It's, yeah. it's it actually just went back to the top of the chart. You don't always see that. You might there might be a new generation of people that discover a great song like that because of new exposure that it gets. But I don't think it's that often that a song actually climbs back to the top of the chart. No, no, for sure not. Well, Amy Shark, A plus. Yeah, great, great uh, record. She also has an album came out two years ago. Hold on, let me look. That is pretty good too. She's uh, put out one more, one more since this one. Yeah, uh, not pretty good. It's good, good. Uh, Cry Forever is cool. And there's actually a song, the single uh, is a great tune, but the, it has Travis Barker on it. So she had Mark Hoppus on the uh, nice. on the first one and then had Travis Barker. Unexpected duets for her, but but the one on this record is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I was looking up when I mentioned Uncle Sam to you. I remember that Uncle Sam, the 90s R&B singer, covered When I See You Smile. Which is a great tune as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and are you going back out with Amos or no? Yeah, uh, I have a few shows with him in early October, just solo shows. He and I out in Northern okay. California, and he, then towards the end of October, I'm doing a few more shows with him and his band in uh, New Orleans, Birmingham, and at this place called the Caverns in Pelham, Tennessee. Have you heard of this? It's like you're underground no. in these caves. That's where the venue is. That's cool. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I got several more dates with him. Because you two were supposed to do a song, um, a specific. Yeah, uh, you know what? That, that never. It didn't. About. It didn't come up. But there's still time. There's still. You got to remind him. I'll remind him. I'll, yeah. I'll be pissed off. I'll, well, I was I'll, thinking I'll, when like, you pissy. mentioned that anyway. I was thinking maybe that would happen with the acoustic shows. You know, maybe, perfect. It, for it that. would make more sense. But somebody's, no, he's, somebody's got to learn how to play it. You know. Yeah, like, I think he'll. On. It would probably be a thing where because I always come back out with him at the end of the night. So okay. You know, I can just come out and sing, and he can. Uh, uh, okay. Man, it's it it. it we'll, we'll we won't do the reveal on here. We'll keep it uh, okay. under wraps because I right. think if I'll mention it again, we've got time. We've got time. Yeah, There's still time I mean, to to make that magic happen. All right, okay. <laughs> I'm just saying it would be big on the inter- and and have somebody record it because I won't be yeah. there. Obviously, have somebody record it. Okay. Yeah, and I think there's got to be. I mean, there's you know there's always 
fan videos of these songs, but yeah, I want something better than a fan. It, right. You want like a legit. Um, yeah, it doesn't have to be. You know, you don't have to call out the production crews or anything, but no. get somebody with a good, have Delia with a good fucking seat and tell her when it's coming. You know? Yeah, right. It, there That's has to be a little, like a little bit of pre-planning to get yeah, a, yeah. a higher level version of it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, if you want to suggest an album for Carl Landry Record Club, remember the Apple Podcast Reviews or carllandryrecordclub.com where a list of Almost all of the albums we've ever we've we've ever talked about on the pod is up there. I'll update it again. You know, I'll I'll get it updated. We're we're pretty close. I think we're within the last month or so. So, suggest an album there. We'll talk to you next time. That's all we got. Stay free, my goose.